wants to be evergreen. Yeah. So that yeah. 20 years from now. now That's right. right. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that music's playing real nice in the background, dude. I dig that tune. Uh, we are here today with the Southeastern Louisiana University English Department's Colloquium. Uh, today's guest is, uh, I guess you could say, very close to what the colloquium is as a form. Uh, he is a writer, I'll say in the broadest term, because uh, there's novels, which he's most known for, but there's poetry, there's essays, there's uh, reviews, uh, blogs, a lot of stuff in the catalog um, that makes his identity. Um, he is also the undergraduate coordinator here at Southeastern Louisiana University. Um, if you've read his work, he's very enigmatic. I think as a person, he has a little bit of an enigma around him as well, just because of his temper. But uh, without further ado, uh, I'm very proud to and honored to invite for the inaugural um, interview this semester, uh, Mr. David Ormond. How are you doing, David? Good, man. Thanks for having me. I, I'm glad you're here, man. Yeah, me too. This is great. <laughs> it's good to be physical with somebody, yeah, right? Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so just to let y'all know, the way that this interview will be compared to the other ones and the previous one that Kendall and I did with Linda Wolverton, uh, since he is a faculty member here, I don't plan to dig and tell everything about David because he's here for you to talk <laughs> to himself. But I do want to scratch some surfaces. So I'll start with this. Uh, he's known as a uh, Southern writer. And if you would like to know what he thinks about the South, I would say read his books, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'll ask him this question first. What do you think it means when people call you a Southern writer? What do you think they're trying to say? Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I think different people will ask that same question but expect different responses or that they have this notion of like the answer before you even give them the answer, you know? Right. So like Southern writers, you know, people think Faulkner, people think Flannery O'Connor, people think the grotesque and people think, uh, grit lit. That's a new term right. that's sort of come out. And honestly, I don't really care for any of those labels and not, not because I think I'm like beyond them, but I think they, they create these ideas that, you know, it's like, oh, if you're a Southern writer, you only write this type of stuff. You know, you're obsessed right. with religion. You're obsessed with, you know, uh, this sort of hard scrabble kind of existence, you know. Uh, I know a lot of my work deals with that, but I, I like to think that it, it, it goes a little bit further than that. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, I was born here. I was raised here. And so I think I just can't help but right. write about it. But but I, I would also hope that you know like my books and the stories that i tell could take place somewhere else and, and still kind of touch on the same stuff right so yeah no that's the reason i asked that question is because there seems to be a tradition that is expected yeah with, does anybody say oh he's a southwestern writer or a midwest writer <laughs> and they expect a tradition to be carried so pronouncedly maybe so i don't mean to insult those traditions no, no. but you're probably you're right and I, I think if there is, it's not nearly as, as common as, as it is if somebody's called a Southern writer. Right. You know, yeah, right. because you're right. I mean, you don't hear like uh, necessarily like a Midwest writer. No, no you tradition yeah, follows yeah, that. Yeah. Right. But uh, I guess that will bring me to my next question nicely. So here it is. Um, and you know this quote, but maybe our audience doesn't. So I'll, uh, I'll do a little explication. So O'Connor, Flannery O'Connor said, the presence alone of Faulkner in our midst makes a great difference in what the writer can and cannot permit himself to do. Nobody wants his mule and wagon stalled on the same track the Dixie Limited is roaring down. So 
just to explain what most people interpret that to mean, it's you don't want to be doing what Faulkner did, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My question to you is, do you ever feel like you are consciously working your identity and relationship to other artists? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, and Faulkner being one of the, the big ones, you know, I mean, I think when I first... I started writing my first novel when I was in a Faulkner seminar class. Um, you know, so I think that I just couldn't help but kind of just, you know, be kind of like walking beneath his shadow, you yeah. know. Um, but then it's also, you know, like Harold Bloom calls that the anxiety of influence, you know. So, I mean, there's that anxiety <laughs> of like, well, you know, is my work derivative? You know, is it does it sound too much like this? Right. And so sometimes, you know, those comparisons, like people have made them before, to my, you know, like my work. And I, I mean, it's like, wow, that's like a really big compliment. But then at the same time, it's like, well, I don't know if I want right. that necessarily, you know, because you, you know, I think I like any artist like you would, I mean, you want to do your own thing, right? you know, and, and we speak to those other people, but are with them, but right. uh, you want to make it new, you know? Yeah. And there's like we were saying with the, the construct, construct of the Southern writer, there's a mold that people expect. Yeah. So I've, I've seen the, they say you're like O'Connor yeah. and Faulkner yeah. and McCarthy, which are all outstanding writers, yeah. which are great company to be. But at the same time, we would question, is that really what it is? Or is that what they just ex- want you to be or yeah. expect you to be? So it's good to hear that you're aware of that. Cause oh, I know yeah. it. Yeah. And you said the anxiety of it. Yeah. So. And I mean, I mean, at first I thought, man, this is the best compliment anyone could give. <laughs> right. And then over the years it's turned more into like, well, no, I don't want to do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be that. Um, even though I, I tremendously admire that, that work and that, that style and the right. things that they did. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, like Ezra Pound, he said, make it new. You know, you have to make it new, do right. something different. Yeah. Um, but it, it weighs on you, though, definitely. Certainly. Certainly. So uh, to get into the personal of it all, and I, I uh, so I am a big Ormond fan, <laughs> all right? So I try to keep up to date with what he is. And I found this blog last week um, that you just posted in for the first time in, like, three or four years, yeah, right? Yeah, I'm going to yeah. put him on the spot. Yeah. But, um, so just to explain the blog, just in general, and I'm going to let him further explain what's going on. Um, he apparently has a photo album of time before him and maybe when he was a child. And he's writing in, if he's not in the picture, this like sometimes limited, sometimes <laughs> yeah. a four-way third. And if he's in the picture, he puts himself in. But it definitely has a, a, fictional, a fictionalization to it. Yeah. Um, why did you do that exercise, number one? <laughs> number two, why did you put it online? It's very intimate. Yeah, yeah well... So, you know, so like I, I wrote a memoir, you know, a few years ago and I never ever thought that I would do that. I never planned on doing that. It just sort of happened, you know, yeah. my life, uh, just took sort of a unique twist and, uh, you know, I, I wrote about it and then, uh, a couple of years ago it took another really strange tr- twist in, in that I found out, uh, just by accident, I took a DNA test on Ancestry. And this person popped up on there as being my first cousin. And I had never heard this guy's name in my life. And I, and I had like more DNA shared with him than anybody else on there. So I 
went down this rabbit hole like trying to find out well first okay this this is a mistake like who is this guy he lives like in ohio i've never been to ohio uh so long story kind of (laughs) short is that i found out he was actually my uncle and when i found out who his brother was and looked him up on you know the beauty of the internet found this guy his facebook page and he looked exactly like me like i mean and it's because somebody even said it's like man did you ever think like like your life is just kind of like a book like waiting to be like you know so and i guess i felt sort of like i have to write this you know i have to write this story but so basically you know the man who i thought was my father you know kind of like the pearl jam song you know the alive uh you know i mean he grew up thinking this other dude was his dad and he found out that's like a traumatic like earth-shaking thing you know And, and so for me, I was lucky because I reached out to this guy and he had no idea I existed. Right. He didn't even remember my mother. You know, he, yeah. uh, obviously, you know, they just had like a little fling and here I am. Yeah. <laughs> but he was willing to meet me. At first he wanted to take a paternity test, you know, and he was willing to do that. We did it and it came back and said 99.99%. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, so there's no doubt. Uh, and, and not to mention he looks exactly like me. Um, and so I wrote this little piece, you know, because I love, uh, in poetry, I love ecphrastic writing, you know, where you look yeah. at an image and you write about it. And so I had all these pictures, and I was thinking about my childhood and thinking about how different my life could have been had I known this man, like, my whole life, and that when I was 38, when I first met him. Um, and started looking at photographs of him that I had gotten, that I had acquired since I met him. Um and then it, it ended up with me imagining, because it occurred to me, it's like, wow, you know, I know that there are people in the world who don't have pictures of them with their whole family, like they right. don't exist, you know, like their parents. And, but I thought about that, it's like, wow, there's, and there will never be a photo of me with my mother and my father, because my mother passed away, and so it's, that will never happen. Yeah. And so I imagined what that photo would look like, you know, and so, the, so it's kind of like an ekphrastic essay, I guess, you know, it's yeah. like an experimental kind of thing and uh trying to tell that story but just in a kind of in a different way so the photo album is not real the photo album's real all those photos exist except for the very last one oh really because the very last one it says this is me when i was 10 years old and and at when i was 10 years old i didn't even know i knew who my mother was but i I wasn't raised by her and then i had no idea who this other man was and he didn't know and it's been weird because i mean he and i talk we you know we still have a uh a relationship and everything and you know he all i think he feels very remorseful even though i don't think he has a reason to i mean he didn't know that i existed right and my mother didn't know that was the weirdest thing she thought that some other guy was my dad yeah so wow yeah yeah uh, <laughs> we chuckle a little bit that's that eudora welty peculiar funny not the yeah, ha-ha funny yeah. like luth quote it's how like you said like your book your life is a book yeah. ready to be written how those things line up like that. Yeah, and I, I believe, you know, like wholeheartedly that, that these things aren't accidents, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, I guess you could say like, yeah, I was an accident, like in the sense that, you know, my mother didn't plan to to get pregnant with me from a guy who, you know, I, I don't know what the, the circumstance was, how they met or whatever, but um, I, I feel like I was given this opportunity to write and, and share a story. Yeah. And then it's like, now I've, been given a story you know to share so it's like i feel like it's like my my uh my duty to write it you know tell it because i know there are a lot of other people who have similar stories and that 
I know for me, if I had read it, that story when I was younger or at any point, it just, it, that's how we are as human beings. I like, we connect to other people through, through those things, those similar stories. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's beautiful, dude. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, uh, I, I knew that you just from taking your course and just reading a few of your novels and poems, I knew that you worked from images yeah. and a lot of stuff. So I wanted to play a little game with you. <laughs> All right. Um, and we calling it the, uh, we calling it the reverse Rorschach test. Okay. okay. So I'm going to present you with one of your novels. And if you could tell me the image or the experience or the smell or the sound or whatever that inspired that specifically, if you can remember, you you can pass. You okay. Can, uh, so uh, we'll start with the pugilist wife. Okay. All right. And I and I, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to remember every one because you know because people ask you know like where do you get your ideas? Right. That's one thing that and, and uh, I've been asked that a whole bunch of times and and I always tell people sometimes they seem disappointed to hear this is like well i don't really ever get ideas i have an image yeah and so everything that i write starts just with a picture that's in my brain right and so for the pugilist wife um it started as kind of like a, a, a something i had heard like a friend of mine lived out in sun where that novel takes place which is going toward bogalusa you know it's like in the country pine trees woods everywhere and he, I, he was supposed to spend the night at my house or we were in high school and he was going to ride the bus home with me. And that day he came to school and he said, yeah, hey, I can't come to your house, you know, because this guy escaped from the jail in Bogalusa and he's out at large and my mom lives by herself and she's afraid that he might like wander up to our house, you know, cause they live out in the middle of the woods. So he had to go home. And that was when I was in high school, you know, it was like, some years back <laughs> and uh and that image always stuck with me about of the image of this woman standing on her front porch looking out into this vast pine forest and wondering if this guy's going to emerge and if so what is he going to do and and that anxiety of being alone and not knowing and so that's where that novel came from is just that image yeah and and, and so the invention part came in where because in real life they caught the guy, you know, they had all their helicopters and dogs and they caught him. Nothing happened. But, um, in the novel, the guy emerges from the, uh, the woods and she takes him in. Um, and then the novel sort of unfolds from there dramatically, you know, uh, things happen. And, um, but that's the image basically just someone standing out, looking out into this abyss, I guess, and wondering. All right, then let's, how about the Lord's acre? The Lord's Acre, I think that started actually, that one's weird because that started with an image that didn't end up in the book. So I was like, I knew I wanted to write about a cult <laughs> yeah. because I'm, I'm, I've always been fascinated by cult leaders. And uh, even when I was younger, uh, I remember when I was like 13 or 14 reading a book about Charles Manson, which is kind of weird, but I was just interested in like people like that. And so the image that the Lord's acre comes from is I, I was imagining these young boys walking through the woods and they see their pastor whipping one of the congregants with a stick who had like done this minor infraction. And then they're standing there watching and their whole image of this guy has been shattered. And so, and they don't know if they should tell someone they don't know if the person may be really, because they have all their faith is in this guy and they yeah. think, well, maybe 
this person deserves this. And, 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 and of course, by that point I had read Jim Jones. I mean, he would spank his congregants in front of the whole congregation if they had done this minor little infraction, you know, and then we all know what happened, you know, in Jonestown. So I was real interested in that. And that's how the novel originally opened. Um, and that novel was a lot longer than it ended up being. And I, that was one of the scenes that came out, but that was the image of, of yeah. two kids witnessing something like so that. So you had that image or that's the image you came up with? You saw it or you No, I, that, I just came up with it. it that's not like, even in the book. Yeah, I know. That's, <laughs> that's what, what that's you were what's saying. Interesting. Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. Uh, and that was the opening scene. Originally, that was like the, the scene. The book opens with these two boys walking through the woods. They hear something and they look over and they see their beloved pastor. Um whipping somebody with a stick man and and, and, and but then it, it it changed and and i still wanted to have the drama in the opening so right. it opens a lot differently but it's still a dramatic i think or hope uh beginning and something compelling yeah it's different yeah it's a it different, very different it's a different yeah. story in a, in a way but yeah. uh how about the uh the gorge so that one same thing image i uh one other thing that i was always I just have this morbid fascination, I guess, with things. Um, there was a, well, when I was younger, I saw the movie Dead Man Walking. <laughs> okay. And I was kind of interested that that, that took place not far from where I grew up. What you is know, this it, movie, Dead Man Walking? So Dead Man Walking is uh, about this guy from Franklinton. Um, and I actually went to school with like some of his cousins oh, wow. in Folsom. Um, he and a friend... Um, committed this horrible horrible crime in franklinton which isn't far from Folsom. um just a terrible crime and so they were sentenced to death row um and were ultimately executed but there was a movie made about it with sean penn uh and uh, susan sarandon who plays a nun it was a real person and she was actually my mother's teacher in catholic school and my mother uh, Sister Helen Prejean, and she's real vocal even now about the death penalty, speaking against it. Uh, well, she counseled this guy while he was on death row oh, wow. um, and sort of came to the conclusion that the death penalty is not right. It's not good. And even though this guy did this, he should be forgiven and not, you know, freed from prison or anything. But um, so long story again, short, uh, <laughs> trying to shorten it is. Uh, I had this image of of that crime, yeah, um, and and being the people who came across the 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 aftermath, and and then trying to figure out who did it and why, and you know, in a small town, you know, people gossip, people talk, people make speculations um, <laughs> about things that aren't true, and so it all started with the image of them finding th- this murdered couple, yeah. Um, so same thing, yeah, just an image. And that that's why, and this last one, because this is my favorite Ormond book, Harlow. Yeah. Um, w- w- was there an image for that one Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm glad that I'm able to readily remember all, because you know, it's like, you know, one of those books, that was like 10 years ago when they came yeah, out. It's like, yeah. But I I hear interviews with writers all the time, and or Stephen King is one. Somebody will ask him about a book, you know, that came out thirty something years ago, and he still remembers the character's first and last name and what they did. And how, it's like, yeah. I mean, this guy's written like sixty books. You know, yeah. I guess you just never forget that stuff. But so Harlow, <laughs> I was driving with my family out in the country. Like we used to do this a lot more when they, my kids were real little. That's the only way to get them to fall asleep is get in the car, put them in their car seat, and drive, yeah. and then they'd fall asleep. Yeah. Um, 
and so we're driving out uh i guess going up toward um kentwood yeah up 51 that back way right and i looked over and there were these big deep ditches on the side of the road and and my wife's always like you know like if i start to kind of edge over toward the shoulder you know she'll kind of slap me in the arm a little bit you know and make me you know get back on the road you know because i get distracted but i was imagining like what if there was like a a kid just sleeping in a ditch right there yeah and i thought and so that's the other thing so with those images there's always a question so it's like so okay there's a kid sleeping in this why the heck would he be there why would he be doing that and then as that's how I write novels is I start answering all the questions that arise from the image. Um, and so that's when that one came from, I thought, well, maybe it's a boy who's, uh, on a journey. He's walking from one place to the other and he sleeps in this, this ditch for some reason, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, you know, maybe it seems a little implausible that someone would do that. Um, but I also know that people in, in desperate situations, I mean, when I was trying to find out my father and kind of confirm who he was a couple of years ago, I did things that were completely uncharacteristic of me. I was very bold. Um, I'm, cause I'm kind of an unassuming person and I yeah. called him up and, uh, said, did you ever meet this woman named Susan in the 1970s? You know, and he said, no. And then as we talked, uh, after a while, um, things started to kind of, come together and make sense yeah um so i guess my point is to say that not things seem implausible but you, when you're in a circumstance you know uh you'll do things that might surprise you and that's what that boy does <laughs> yeah he, certainly um and i that's the i don't want to push it too hard like i said it's first time a reverse rorschach test may have been done on anybody yeah. especially their yeah. novels but uh i will say it's just a compliment which I'm not supposed to give too many on this thing, especially yeah. more inquisitive. Um, I am from Tangeville Parish. Uh, you go to Washington Parish for the for the fair. Yeah. You know, you go here and there. You really do write the area. Yeah. Which it's so. You know, it's poor. It's a poor area. Yeah. Especially con- you're from Washington Parish. Well, it's Folsom Saint Tammany or Saint Washington, Tammany. Saint yeah, Tammany. Yeah. But you're on that line. Oh up yeah. There. Not far. <laughs> not far. But uh. It's a it's a unique culture because we're New Orleans inspired, but we're not New Orleans. Oh, yeah. We're Mississippi influenced, but it's not Mississippi either. It's just yeah. strange middle of nowhere and everywhere. Yeah, you know yeah, that's a good way of saying it. It, it really is. Yeah. So I know that specifically Harlow. I mean, the Lord's Acre did it for me as well, and I think all the books do it. But Harlow, knowing how to. I don't know. I don't know how to walk from sun to a meat. Yeah, I don't yeah. know, but I could imagine someone yeah. doing it. So you ask, could the guy be asleep in the ditch? I mean, if he's walking from Sunday meat, yeah, that's that kind of wealthy thing, right? Yeah. If you can get the reader to believe a, yeah, a little bit of something that's unbelievable just for a second, yeah, you can. Uh, and that's the thing. I mean, I think in people in situations. I mean, I may have done that. I, you know, tried to make that track. You know, when I, right. you know. Because when you want to know the truth, at least the way I am, you know, like I'll do whatever I can to find it out. And this, you know, I apologized in a way to my father, the the one I, you know, my real father, uh, because I was, I was like uncharacteristically aggressive in, in getting that to happen. And I, I don't honestly regret it at all because I mean, I think 
I had to do that. I had to know that truth. And right. I think Leslie, the boy in Harlow, is the same thing he has to know. Yeah. Um, and weirdly enough, that book was my initial experience finding, trying to find the guy who I thought was my biological father my whole life. Yeah. I didn't walk across <laughs> the, the country <laughs> like that, but, but I was told that it was this one guy and he lived in Slidell. I looked him up in the phone book. I wrote him a letter. You know, that's when people used to right. write letters. And uh, he called me up. I met him, uh, hugged him, met his family. He met my kids. I thought this guy was my dad <laughs> for years. And then all of a sudden, I found out he wasn't. So, I mean, there was a little bit of, like, humiliation and all that involved. Yeah. But, you know, I look at all that stuff now and just think, man, this is just something that I can use to, you know provide hope maybe for people i mean instead of i, I mean because I, I could just kind of like curl up and just say man this is all so bad i'm not gonna even try anymore but yeah that's kudos again yeah, like I, said, I mean someone i had and i know we'll have a question in fact i'll throw it to kendall um this next one because the graduate students are extremely interested in the memoir yeah. Um, they need to read it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they really want to know the process. So, Kendall, we have a question I know that was submitted about a memoir, right? Yes, we have a question from Lindsay. Um, she was asking that pertaining to your personally inspired novels and especially your memoir, uh, what have been the effects of allowing readers to have such an intimate gaze into your life and the lives of others? Has it ever felt intrusive? Um, that's a good question. I, to me, no, it hasn't been. I mean, I, I think if I were worried about that, uh, I wouldn't have published it. Uh, although at the same time, and you know, I mean, I, I am kind of an open book, I think, and, and I don't mind telling people I, I wrote that memoir in six weeks, Oh wow! which was the quickest I'd ever composed anything of that <laughs> length. And then I sent it off to a couple of publishers and within four weeks I had a, a contract for it and then it came out in less than a year after the contract which is something that just never ever happens um so I didn't really have time to think about like wow how is this going to be received what are people going to because I write about things that are embarrassing yeah. and things that are hard to read but I also remember reading uh, memoirs that did similar things and just feeling so connected to the person who wrote it and so like in awe of their vulnerability, honesty that I felt like I owed it to myself to do that um, and so really now I mean I feel like nothing is you no know, question is really off limits for me anymore I just maybe I, should, I overshare I don't know but I feel like a, you know it's kind of like our, our job I'm protective of my family, my kids. You know, I don't write a lot about my kids and, and that kind of thing. I mean, a little bit, but um, as far as my own life, I uh, I want it to be an open book, you know, because I think people can be inspired by that. I was, yeah, and still am, you know. And you're young. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's yeah. I, I still think I'm young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I still feel young. Uh, yeah, you, you, you definitely vibe young. <laughs> yeah. Man, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Well, to bring up Kendall on that last question, I know that last episode, which was uh, we had Linda Wolverton, mm -hmm. and Kendall asked this question, and it's I guess it's a tricky to ask you now, knowing we st you st to start with an image, 
But after you have an image, what element of the story do you start with? Is it setting? Is it a character? Is it a theme? Or is it something else or a combination? Uh, I, I think all of my novels have been the same in that, so I have the image, and the image creates questions. And then from those questions, I, I would say character is what, what just kind of naturally develops from that yeah. because the character is in the image and, and then I'm asking, well, what is the character going to do now? Um, and then setting is a close second because to me, the setting is also a character, you know, because where we live, where we grow up uh, influences how we respond to things, I think, you know, and, and, and if I had grown up in, in, not to pick on the Southwest, you mentioned the Southwest earlier, but if I grew up in like New Mexico or Arizona or something, I, I wouldn't be writing the books that I'm writing now. I wouldn't respond to my environment in the same way, you know? And, and so, so it's the image, then character, and then setting very close second. And theme, never. <laughs> and, and the reason why is because I think that, that you know, I, and I've ta- uh, talked to or read interviews with novelists who have tried to write a book based on a theme. Uh-huh. And it usually is it just kind of it's not successful. I'll say it that way, um, because theme can get in the way, and it, and it can make you do things that you shouldn't be doing. You should tell the story. Themes emerge later, and then you can go back, and that's a great thing is you can go back and finesse them and, and say, "Wow, I see this image going throughout the novel. Maybe I should kind of uh, develop it a little bit more in places." Yeah. So theme is always like at the bottom of the list for sure, and that definitely. It's a southern thing. Yeah. That that theme yeah. would be the bottom of the list. Yeah. Um that's I'll say that that's not surprising as a yeah. reader of yeah. yours. Because there's a lot of questions that are raised that aren't so easily answered. Yeah. I don't think you're trying to answer questions. No. You're trying to present them. That's uh who is that? Some Russian writer. So yeah. the writer he's we all still all writers steal from each other anyway. Oh, yeah. So I'll just yeah. say uh Dr. Lou said, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we're all just stealing from each other, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but I'll steal from him to say that you're not giving the answer. You're just uh, giving the question forwardly and clearly. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I don't, I've read novels that, that attempt to give answers. Um, a cla- another class I'm teaching this semester, you know, we're talking about White Oleander, which is a great novel. Um, and we just finished our discussion of it today. And, uh, I was glad that all the, the discussion leaned toward the fact that students appreciated that there was no answer at the end. Like, we don't know how this is going to all turn out. We just get a glimpse, and it's up to us to say, okay, this is a good ending or this is a satisfactory. Um, yeah, but, I mean, I think the artist's job is just to, to ask the question, articulate right. the question, bring it forth, and then the, the reader's job is to is – to, come up with the answers yeah you know well that's like i said read his books and uh <laughs> not to keep plugging it but hey you yeah. know if you haven't <laughs> read it you're, you're kind of catching in so let me ask you this next question which uh you're kind of alluding to um the writing and writer relationship uh is it strange in the fact that so i'll just ask the question i don't know how to ex- explicate it and if you need me to set it up for you better is the David Ormond well what is the difference between the David Ormond who wrote the pugilist wife and the David Ormond who's speaking to me right now as a writer 
That's a good question. Um, uh, you know, well, you know, so when I wrote that novel, that I was I was still in graduate school, you know, so I was a little bit younger, and uh, it came out ten years ago, and I cannot like read my old books, <laughs> reread them. I just yeah. can't, and I think some of the things I was concerned with when I was writing that novel, I've gotten them out of my system. And, uh, I think, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm less concerned with, with like, uh, experimentation like I was with that book, you know, like jumping around in time and omitting punctuation marks. And right. I thought that was real important when I wrote that and in Harlow too, this, I did the same thing. Um, you know, like you said, you know, we steal from others. I mean, Cormac McCarthy does that, you know, and, right. I, and I love Cormac McCarthy. And I thought, well, if he can do it, you know, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, yeah. and and not just because of that, but he did an interview and he said, you know, well, why clutter up the page with all these little useless marks? Like people know when, when it's dialogue, people, if you write well enough, you don't need to put a comma there. You don't mm -hmm. need to. Um, and so I, I took that to heart and thought, okay, well, I want to, and, and, and I was trained as a poet too, you know, so like I, relied on line breaks i relied on um concision you know and, and that book's really short you know it's the shortest book i wrote you know yeah. that uh i was more interested in just the imagery and in, in trying to use that to like make a st propel a story right and same thing with harlow but by the time the lord's acre came around i thought yeah i, I don't want to i don't want to use any more tricks you know it's like uh I think it was Rocky too, you know, so like Rocky, you know, I always use movies, but you know, like he was a, a Southpaw. And so when he had to fight Apollo the second time, like Mick made him tie his arm, you know, it's like, you have to learn how to fight right-handed now. And, 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 but then when Rocky wins, you know, after, if y'all haven't seen it, sorry, but he wins in Rocky too. And he's like, I don't want to use any tricks. Yeah. No tricks. And so I, I started to look at that as like a trick, you know, it's like, well, this guy's known for his this style you know he's not putting punctuation and all so it's like no more tricks you know i'm just gonna write it like a normal and see what happens yeah you know and but i think i hope you know like people who are artists i mean you, you always want to like do something you didn't do before right you know and i mean i guess to extend on this question because has it it's been a year and a half since Lord Acre's been published, or two, uh, or even shorter. Not quite a year. Not it even quite a year. July. Yeah. July. Coronavirus made his. Well, yeah, I know. You know like yeah. Or you a different writer already from the Lord's Acre? Yeah. Do you feel? Yeah, I'm already, believe it or not, like knee deep in a new novel, and it's totally different. <laughs> it, it's a horror novel. Really? Yeah. And so it's, you know, I think a lot of like literary writers uh, try their hand at genre. You know, Colson Whitehead wrote a zombie novel, and uh, Cormac McCarthy, I guess, you know, he, you could say The Road is like a science fiction novel. Um, and so I wanted to write a horror novel, you know, and I thought, how can I do that but still make it literary? Um, but, you know, and, it, and it's not, so I've never, ever seen a ghost. I've never, ever seen anything like that. But everybody in my family claims that they've seen this stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm still writing what I know. I tell people, write what you know, right? And so my whole life I grew up hearing uh, my mother, you know, my grandparents, like talking about these weird supernatural things that they, they experienced. And so this novel is uh, trying to kind of you know recall all those stories i heard and the skepticism i had because i never saw it but but 
maybe that's the writer in me, but I still believed them, you know, like even though I never, ever, and to this day, never have seen anything like that in my life, yeah, yeah. but I still believe it when somebody says that they do. And so I'm trying to do it and, and, and not, and follow the advice I give to people. Cause I, I read a lot of horror, you know, from students, students love to write genre fiction. And I always say what you don't show the reader is the scariest. Right. And so I'm trying to keep a lot of it off the, camera you know and, and and to me that's the most frightening thing do you mind sharing with us just a little sneak peek can you tell me and it might change but right now what point of view are you writing that in this one's written in third person okay so is, it, is it more limited or do you third have... person limited okay uh, uh to boy his name is matthew and it's basically me and and you know i mean so it's again it's like harlow you know it's like the lord's acre i mean it's like all these and, and i guess that's why i'm able to like kind of produce these so quickly it's because i'm just like remembering all these things and then yeah. writing down all these memories but just attributing them and so it's third person but it's also all written in the present tense uh, but <laughs> build it, that tension right yeah and the other thing that this one is different too is because i was thinking about this it's weird like every book that i've written takes place in the 1980s but you wouldn't know that because I never mentioned any popular culture yeah. ever. The Lord's Acre mentions Ronald Reagan, you know, because right. they just say no campaign. That was big when I was a kid. Um, but beyond that, there's no. None. And, you know, so I watched Stranger Things when that came out and I loved it. And the reason I loved it is because of the 80s nostalgia. Like I was the target age group for that show, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. I, I was born in 1980. And so I grew up watching all those same movies all that stuff. And so I thought, man, this is like the time to like, you know, write this nostalgic piece. And so like, there's like tons of pop culture in it. So I mean, it's like totally different from anything I've done and it feels like a risk, but I, I want to, yeah. well, was it an essay or the poem about Nintendo? Yeah. <laughs> so there was, there was a, yeah, I wrote a piece about, you know, playing Nintendo as a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, I think pop culture, like is because I, you know, of course, the the part of me that just takes this so seriously, like I've researched, like, well, what is it? It seems like every thirty years, people become nostalgic for the time thirty years ago, and it's like now we're about forty years from the eighties. But everywhere I look, it's like eighties nostalgia. Certainly. And before that, in the eighties, I remember it was like fifties nostalgia. Everybody's nostalgic, and and so I was reading articles about that, and that's like a very common thing with about every 30 years people start looking back yeah and i thought man this is like the time i need to write this book definitely um, so i mean listen to the music right now it's oh, yeah. so 80s influence yeah, i know it's so 80s not not as good as the 80s no. but definitely. yeah and i mean i still listen i mean my kids make fun of me and, and you know like i, I still listen to all that 80s stuff not yeah. just like the pop 80s but like guns and roses and all that yeah. i mean like and, and so, but it's fun because I can put all that in a book now. Right. And I feel like I have permission. Well, I'm excited, yeah. dude. Especially, the, I know the Lord's Acre, I've read most of the catalog. Is that the first first person you wrote in? Yeah, that was the, yeah. Yeah. So to hear now you're going, that, that was a, the right question to ask is how you've changed. Because this next uh, uh, catalog, I mean, novel being a horror. Yeah. That's brand new territory for you. And it's hard to do. Because I've read horror and I've liked certain horror novels, but some of them are just awfully cheesy, yeah. you know. And, and I mean, I don't make a secret of, of being a fan of Stephen King. I like a lot of Stephen King's stuff. Yeah. But yeah. like The Shining, which I think is a good book, just has some of the cheesiest stuff happening in it. Like these big shrubs that 
like come to life and they're like these dinosaurs that shake. That doesn't happen in the movie, yeah. the Kubrick movie, which I love. I think it's a great film, but um, I don't want to put anything like that in there. So it's all like, like more like Hitchcock, where it's kind of off the screen. Like you right. don't, you know, like you never see uh, Norman Bates, you know, in the shower scene. You never see, you, you know. I don't want to spoil that if anybody hasn't seen that movie either, but you know, like that, that to me is the brilliance of horror. It's like when you don't actually see it, because right. our imaginations are way more frightening. Than well, you remember, you've brought it up in class before, uh, the signs movie. Oh yeah. That, the reason yeah. why it's so scary and it's underwhelming at the end for most viewers when the alien is yeah. revealed, but I, that but, ruined the movie for me. It did for, as a kid, I remember being, scared yeah and i'm like wait wait <laughs> that part just makes you laugh and not in a good way no because it was just like man if that part had not been in there i mean that movie was good <laughs> yes you know? yes uh and it's got i'm glad you bring up uh i quoted a hundred times i quoted it kendall heard it caleb heard it a hundred times with wolverton because we've had this philosophical question write what you know you write what you know you write what you want to know yeah that like walking those lines and being any one of those you want to be but I, I I know you do that wonderfully I know not everybody has like how we were talking about Robert Olin Butler's yeah he's a Vietnam War vet and all of his stories are from Vietnamese Americans perspectives yeah so it's what he knows but it's almost what he wants to know yeah. too you know it's yeah. it's uh but I say that because that's Southern writer tradition right there. Oh, yeah. It's in it. Yeah. But uh, Kendall has another question uh, for us. Um, go ahead, Kendall. Yeah, so actually this relates, since you just said you are working on something new. Um, Alex wants to know, how do you balance your writing process in terms of time management? <sighs> discipline, like extreme discipline. You know, I think... It's not easy, you know, because I, you know, my classes, I'm lucky. I, you know, my classes don't meet until the afternoon. Um, uh, you know, I come here every day, but I get here at eight in the morning. Uh, even though I'm tired, I get here and I just sit in my office and I write until I hit a thousand words every day. And then I get ready for class, go to class, go home. And I mean, I would love to be able to spend four hours a day doing it, but usually my pace this past semester uh, has been a thousand words a day and I can usually get them in about an hour today. It took me two and a half hours to hit a thousand words. But the point is that I did not stop. Even though my hour was up, I thought I'm going to hit a thousand. And when you do that, I have almost 40,000 words of a novel that I started last semester you know, which, I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous. But, I mean, again, I mentioned Stephen King. He said, well, if you write 1,500 words a day in, in three months' time, you have a pretty nice-sized novel. And then then the work is to go back and revise what you – because I don't, I don't work from an outline, and I don't work chronologically. I write a scene. And, and every day I have a scene in mind that I'm going to write. And I, and I don't even worry about, is this going to make it in the final draft? Like the – opening of the Lord's Acre. I mean, that didn't make it. Mm -hmm. um, but psychologically, when you open a document and it has a hundred and I think I have 135 pages now, when I open that, it just is so much easier to keep going because it feels like I have so much already. There's no point in giving this up. Um, 
But it's not always like that because, I mean, sometimes the semester it's like I get here at 8 o'clock and I have these urgent things I have to do and so there will just be no time for the writing. But in the beginning of the semester, I'm fortunate because it's not all hitting me. And uh, and I just – some people say writing's fun. I wouldn't say it's fun, but I love doing it because I feel like it just gives my life, like, meaning, you know, like I'm working on something. And I don't know. It's, it's meaningful. So that means that you're on a regiment. So yeah. like if you uh you don't just work by inspiration. You, if if you're not feeling inspired today, you still write, right? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes it feels like pure work, pure work. And if Faulkner said that, you know, he said because somebody said, "Do you write every day or only when you're inspired?" And he said, "I write only when I'm inspired." but I'm inspired every day. Oh, wow. But he didn't say what he was inspired by. It could have been just to pay the electricity bill. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, Faulkner painted billboards. He worked in a post office. He worked in a boiler room. You know, he was poor. And so the only thing, and he didn't have a high school diploma. I mean, he didn't uh, have many prospects. And so I think his inspiration a lot of the time was just to put food. He had a lot of people that were looking up to to him to support them you know yeah uh, but i'll also say this because i mean i just this is just life i mean so like i don't write when i'm not here so like tomorrow all the way until next thursday when we're back on campus probably won't write a word and i'm okay about that like i I don't ever beat myself up if i don't do it um that's refreshing though yeah it it does reinvigorate what you're doing yeah, because right. I, you know, and I, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's good to spend a couple of days away from something, and then I always just like to say that too, because I think I always heard writers say, "I write every day from five a.m. till noon. I take an hour break, and then I get back on the keyboard until five p.m. seven days a week." And I thought either they're lying or <laughs> they just don't have to do anything else but that. And I don't know that's not true for people. Flannery O'Connor, I think was cause she lived on a peacock farm and she didn't have, she didn't have teaching obligations and, uh, Faulkner just refused to really do anything but write. Yeah. Even though it cost a lot, you know, but, um, I think it's important to tell people don't worry about it if you don't write every day. Yeah. And I know you you're know. a big proponent of, uh, cause I agree in other art forms writing you're writing or you're in the process of writing even when you're not behind the keyboard yeah and that's another good thought i think to to share with a lot of people is that yeah i mean like if you're if you're a writer you're writing all the time anyway like when you're sitting at a bar having a beer you're listening to what people are saying or you're just looking and noticing the way things look the way things smell sounds um and if you train your brain to do that, like you just are always doing it, yeah. you know? Um, but you have to be careful. Cause I mean, it's, like for me, I mean, I can get into that little space and, and, and everything else is kind of shut out, you know? And I don't want to do that to people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's a Liberace says if he doesn't practice when he, if he didn't practice for one day, he would notice if he didn't yeah. practice for two days, those closest around him would notice if he didn't practice for three days, that people would notice yeah. even though nobody would have noticed after three days what he's saying is you know being disconnected from the art yeah. from what he does there's a little bit of loosey-goosey but when you're a creator that's a little bit of the technician side what he's talking about I think. yeah when you're a creator like you like you're saying you're not op- you're observing yeah and you're image driven 
yeah. I would probably say all writers or even yeah. if they don't even even if they don't know it right yeah absolutely so, yeah um, and you're always listening I mean that's the biggest thing is just listening not necessarily the mind for stories right. but just hearing the way people talk the cadences of, of you know people in your area the in the way buildings look and the the way like the paint is fading on the bricks of this building like you know some people drive past that and they just don't you know but artists notice those things and they should they should be paying attention yeah um and kendall has another question you said yeah yeah we have another question from christian and christian wants to know is there a particular work that was more taxing to create than the others hmm I think, well, the gorge was tough because that had very little of my own um, life in it, you know, and, I, and I'm a big, big proponent, as Tyler knows, you know, write what you know, um, and, and I didn't know much about um, that that kind of thing, you know, other than watching Dead Man Walking or, you know, you know knowing about police work but I didn't really want the book to be about that um but it was hard because I I wrote it and it was about uh you know 75,000 words or so and the publisher wanted me to cut it down to 50,000 and so I cut out a lot of stuff um but you know the part that I did know that kind of drove the book for me is one of the characters Grady um which the novel almost was called Grady uh but it became called the gorge but grady's one of the main characters uh who has a strange relationship with his mother uh and that was based off of my imagining what it had been like had my mother raised me because she was very uh sort of overprotective and and uh it's disturbing it's a disturbing book you know and I, but it was the hardest one i think for me to write just because i didn't know a lot about those kind of things about the crimes and how they're solved and how, you know, they, that, that kind of stuff goes down. But interesting. Did yeah. you ever have to take a break from it? No, that's, no. that's the, yeah. I'm, I'm very like, you know, so when I start on a project, I just go till I get to the end of it, you know? And, um, and then I might put it away for a little bit and start on another thing. Um, but I, I usually don't work on things simultaneously unless I'm writing like, Sometimes I'll write poems, you know, or, yeah. or like a short essay or something like that. Um, but even when I'm doing that, I'm thinking like the bigger picture, like this is going to be a part of this thing, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, I think that was the most, the gorge was probably the most difficult. Cool. And the horror story, the horror novel, that's not been as difficult as the gorge, no? It's not at all because it's all like the same thing. It's like I'm just writing about all these things that happen. Gotcha. And it's so weird because it's like, you know, my the whole time growing up, I never saw anything like that. And, and my first memory, like, so we moved from New Orleans when I was about five years old or younger because I hadn't even started school yet to Covington. We rented this little house and, um, you know, we were poor, you know, and so we had this little bitty house, one bathroom and five people in the family. And one night my brother, we slept in the same bed, you know, because we, we had the same room a little double bed we were sleeping in the same and he woke me up and he said um david look in the garage look in the closet look in the closet somebody's looking at us and i looked in there and i didn't see anything and i said what are you talking about you know 
just go back to bed or whatever. And he said, no, look, there's eyes in there that they're looking. And he really saw this. I mean, until this day, he said that he saw these two eyes looking out. And, and I never believed. I, well, I never saw it, but I believed that he really did. Yeah. And then fast forward a few weeks later, uh, one night my dad like woke up in the middle of the night. And he said that somebody was choking him but we couldn't see anybody. And my dad was not the kind of guy to believe in that kind of stuff. Um, and and this is my stepdad, not my, my biological dad, but, uh, he also suffered from alcoholism and he had some, some issues, you know, which I wrote about, you know, my memoir, but, uh, I kind of am trying to play with that idea too. It's like, well, does like those sort of things make somebody more prone to, but but I'll say this, after that happened, he said, oh, that never happened. What are y'all talking about? Like, he just denied that. Oh, but wow. but I mean, I have a distinct memory of him waking up and him saying, get him off me, get him off. And he said there was a man choking him in his bed. I mean, and all this weird stuff like that happened in that house. And we moved out not long after. Oh, man, um, I'm excited for this. Yeah, thing. so I'm like writing all this stuff. It just feels weird because it's like, you know. I don't know. I mean, I've never written anything. But like I'll that say that before. all your novels, they have that, they have that fogginess ready for that. Yeah. There's a mystery. I call you enigmatic. Even though we've talked a lot, I still feel like there's so much of and I've read about you. There's so much. I feel like I don't know, which is fine. That's yeah, how people yeah. are. But your, your novels, even your poetry has that little bit of, it's, it's just like, it's, it's not foggy as in the way that you can't see the things. The things are mimetic for certain, but there's just a, like a it's a different shade going yeah, on. I, yeah. I don't know if you and that's just who you are. Maybe. It is, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's my per- like. People have criticized me, I think, for being aloof, you know, <laughs> and and like hard to know, you know. Yeah. Um, and I don't do that on purpose. I mean, I think that's just like kind of my per- like. I've felt kind of guarded, you know, in, in certain yeah. times, and uh, which is weird because when when I write, <laughs> I'm not like that at all. No. I was- and it, it, but you yeah. know, I see people like who I admire, like artists and stuff, and and they're all like that. And I, and I'm not trying to like cultivate like somebody else's image, but like in like people who like they can't make eye contact and they don't really say much, but then they get up, uh, you know, on the stage or whatever to perform, yeah. and all of a sudden it's just like this like totally different person comes out, yeah. You know, and and I think the, the persona, yeah, the, yeah, the artistic yeah, persona, yeah. 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 That's, 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 I, I read, read, read Armand's stuff, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll play, but <laughs> yeah. I, what are some of your favorite books? I, I know this is a question you're asked. So I have that question for you and I have a fun question after that one. So what are your standard interview question? What are your favorite books? Um, that can change depending on what day you ask. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I do. I mean, I always, the people in one of my classes that I taught, they said, yeah, one day we're going to have a uh, a drinking game in your class. Like every time you mention Stephen King, we're going to take a shot. <laughs> yeah. and, and I don't know why I mentioned him so much, but I think it's because I started reading his stuff when I was young. And, and then I was sort of taught to think he's no good. You know, when I started coming to college, it's like, you don't read that, that garbage. You know, you need to read this. You need to read. And then the rebellious part of me, uh, when I started teaching said, well, I'm going to teach a Stephen King novel. You know, I'm going to use one in my class um, because there is value in it. So that's a long way of saying that uh, one of my favorite novels is 112263. Okay. 
which is about a guy who travels back in time to stop the Kennedy assassination, which sounds wild. But when you read the the way he writes it, it's about way more than that. You know, I mean, it's like one of the few books, like there are a couple of books that I read and I cry when I read them. That's one of them. Um, the other one is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Um, but he just makes it seem like, wow, yeah, somebody really could just travel back in time and do this. Because the way it happens in the book, he's like in a diner and he walks into the broom closet. And when he comes out, he's in the year 1957. <laughs> and, and But the way it just happens, it's just like, well, yeah, I guess if, if there's like this like little uh, ripple in the in the space time continuum however you want to say that like that's where it would be like in this little broom closet in his diner in <laughs> yeah. maine you know yeah yeah and i just thought that was such a cool way to handle that you know it's not like the delorean or something or even back to the future where you you know i don't know so i love that book and it's long you know it's like <laughs> 900 pages long i've read it three times oh wow um so there's that one i love uh cold mountain by charles frazier uh Steinbeck, East of Eden. I mean, I love long books, yeah. but I don't write long books. No. I mean, and like the one I'm writing right now, it's you know, it's about close to forty thousand words, and I always I feel like when I hit sixty thousand, it'll be done, because all my other books were about fifty, sixty. Yeah. Uh, the Lord's Acre, I think, was seventy-five. Um, and I don't know why that is, but I love to read long books. I just don't write them. And it may be, I mean, not to analyze you, but it may be your the poet, the poet in you, yeah. you know, that can be more concise and yeah. nuanced. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, Stephen King, like uh, to mention him again, I mean, I th- sometimes he probably has stuff in there that doesn't need to be there. And yeah. I mean, like his books are 900 pages long. It's like, and I'll read it cause it, I just like his, his writing, but they don't need to be that long. You <laughs> right. know? And it's hard to get books published that are that long unless you're Stephen King. Yeah. And you know? I, maybe there's a little bit of a, a price hike if you, well, that too. You're yeah. thinking it up. You might be making profit on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But hey, he's Stephen King. It's, yeah. It's, I know. So, so somebody would publish his grocery list. I'm sure like one day, you know, they'll have like a, a book, just a collection of all his tweets. Yeah. You know, after he's gone, you know, they'll probably be like, and, and people will buy it. Certainly. <laughs> they find everything. If, if anything Faulkner coughed on, they find yeah. it and sell it, you know, so. And that's something too. I mean, I, when I was learning to write, the most valuable thing other than my teachers, the great teachers I had was reading biographies of writers, uh, particular Faulkner. I probably read three different ones of him. Um, and then letters, uh, you know, so somebody like Faulkner, I mean, there's like a book of all his correspondence or at least the, the one that the ones that still exist. I mean, that was just so like enlightening for me to read that. Like, wow, this is how like an artist progresses and how an artist thinks on a daily basis um and then the greatest one is uh, john steinbeck there's a book called journey of a novel and what it was was he, when he was writing uh, the grapes of wrath and then he did for east of eden every day before he started working on the novel he'd write a letter to his editor just talking and even if he wasn't going to give it to the editor it was yeah, today I'm building a coffee table. My wife wants this for our anniversary, and I'm working on this, and then we're going to go to a baseball game. And you just talk about, like, mundane, everyday stuff, and then he would say, and then when I sit down on the novel, I'm going to start, like, fleshing out this scene. Um, when you read that, and you actually, like, you're getting, like, this glimpse into this guy's mind, like, this is how this thing was made. Yeah. I mean, 
I tell students all the time that you have to read it or like the Paris review, they did the art of fiction interviews and they're just, it's just such incredible information on there about craft and all that. So, yeah. And, uh, I would highly suggest all the students, the workshops here at Southeastern, that's what they're for. That craft, that discussion of craft. I know in your workshop, it's you you talk about meaning and things like that but it's it's a craft workshop yeah so for those who are when he's talking about that if you want you want that experience i mean there's people in there who are just taking that class yeah. they don't take anything else it's, yeah. it's the only workshop really around here like mm-hmm. that so but uh here's the fun question you can defer if you'd like <laughs> but we thought this was interesting what is your least favorite book that people have said should be one of your favorite <laughs> Well, so I know the, the, the answer comes to my head like immediately, and I know that I will catch a lot of heck for this, but I'll just say it, A Confederacy of Dunces. <laughs> <laughs> and so if, if uh, Richard Luth ever hears this, uh, I just, I, I mean, my theory behind that book is that the, 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 the legend behind how it became published is what, and it's not a badly written book. I think it's just not as great as people say it is. And I mean, that's just my opinion. I mean, I, right. And and again, I know people would vehemently disagree with that. Um, But again, you know, I mean, honestly, I mean, to me, the story behind the book is more interesting than the book itself. Right. And, and how much of that is apocryphal? I don't know. But I actually, when I was in high school, I, um, this guy, uh, whose family owned Langenstein's, grocery store in new orleans big i don't think it's there anymore um but he grew up with john kennedy tool they were friends as little kids and uh john kennedy tool was like this child prodigy like he could play mozart when he was like six years old and his mother just doted on him um and then he went on to college and he i think he taught in lafayette and uh and then at loyola maybe at some point and he could never get this book published and as we know you know he ended his life and then after that his mother championed his book and and took it to walker percy who was at loyola and said you have to read this and and walker percy said you know i, I can't tell you how many times people come to my office and give me their their masterpiece you know and say it's the best thing ever and he said but i started reading this and it really was special um and so it was published and then it won a pulitzer uh i think and then um yeah, now it's just part of like, I mean, it's taught here and people love it. Um, and I think I'm in the very small minority of people who just don't like it. <laughs> and I, I, I almost want to say, and I'm sorry, but I'm not going to apologize. I just, I, that's, that's the book. That's the book. Good. I, I'll, <laughs> well, but I'm not saying people shouldn't read it. Cause I mean, they, you know, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it is subjective. Yeah. I'm sure there's a bad review of an Ormond book out oh, there. Yeah, there is. <laughs> yeah, there is. On a, google or amazon or whatever it's on amazon i I could probably recite it to you (laughs) really (laughs) tell me what book is it for it's for my mother's house oh really yeah it's the one one star review and and, you know i know you know we're not supposed to look at that but you can't help it you know you want to see what people think of your stuff and this person wrote um and what what I felt was unfair about it, you know, because of course you don't want to be cri- like I, I can take criticism, right? Okay? But this criticism wasn't of the book, it wasn't of the writing. It was because the person didn't agree with my choice in life to 
uh, you know, because my mother, you know, she was schizophrenic and I didn't know her. I met her when I was 20 years old. Yeah. She, she had given me up when I was probably about two years old and I went through a lot of stuff, you know, which I wrote about. And then after I met her for the first time, we lost touch and then uh, she tried to kill herself and, and somehow I, I was the one who found her, you know, and, and saved her. Like, I mean, if I, I drove out to where she lived and I found her and the cops came, they beat her door down, they grabbed her and they, you know, somehow they were able to save her. Um, and she had to live with me for a few months because she had nowhere to go. Yeah. She was in the hospital for a while and then a group home. And I have to say that was one of the most amazing experiences in my life because it was hard. But like I had this bond with her that it doesn't matter. Like all that crap that happened, like that mother son bond is something that you just, you need, I think people need, I don't know. I needed it. And, uh, but anyway, this person is, so the end, you know, in the end I had to, uh, have my mother leave. I mean, she couldn't keep, I had two young kids, I had a wife and, and she was very, uh, demanding of my time and it was affecting me emotionally it was hard and so I had to you know make the choice to send her back to her house um, and so the person who wrote this negative review would just was criticizing me for my life decision not the book and I thought well it's not really that fair you know and, I, and I'm not one to I, I, and I would never do this is get on Amazon and like you know because I've seen authors do that and I just thought man that's just like the epitome of like it's just best to just not say anything, you know, it's like, that's her opinion and I respect it, but, um, it's not about the work. Yeah. But that, but my argument would be, uh, and I kind of suspect I even know who, who wrote it (laughs) (laughs) because I was at a a symposium and I was reading that from that book. And I said, um, yeah, this memoir that I really like called this boy's life uh, which was made to Leonardo DiCaprio. It was kind of an older movie, but it's yeah. really good. Uh, the book has an uh, epigraph, and it says, this book is dedicated to my stepfather, who told me when I was younger that everything I n- didn't know could fill up a book, which is like a crappy thing to say. And he said, well, here it is. Dang. That's how he dedicated the book. And, and so I kind of prefaced my reading just by saying, you know, like, not like as a jab to my mother or anything. Cause I didn't put that. I just said, I hope my mother will still love me if she reads this. That's, that's how I dedicated the book to her. Um, and I don't know if she ever did ever read it. I don't know. But, um, but the person who wrote the review said something along the lines, like, it sounds like this guy is just trying to say, look at all the horrible stuff I've been through. And, and now here it is or something. But the way she quote, it was almost like she was somebody who was in that audience or something. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. So I didn't want to spend a whole lot of time trying to figure all that out. No. Waste well, time, I, thank you for sharing it. But <laughs> yeah. I, I think, yeah, someone who read the memoir and I, you and I have spoken of, there's an aloofness, there's an emotional restraint, yeah. which is unsettling, but it's what provides such emotional weight of the story. And that might be in part of what they were feeling is, especially if they, they may for one to be so personally offended, they probably have an experience similar to that. And she did. She mentioned okay. that in her review too. Oh, she wow. said, my mother is schizophrenic and she passed away and I'd give anything 
to to spend one more yeah. day with her. It's some kind so, of So I mean, I really get yeah. that, and, I, and and that's again why I wasn't angered by it. I just thought I felt it was unfair because it wasn't really a review of the book, but just my my choice versus what she would have done. Right. No, I and my mother passed away, and I I would give anything to spend another day with her too. <laughs> right. You know, and. and so, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I think that uh, everybody has their opinion, you know, and the right yeah. to it. I think that, if anything, that shows that book has some emotional weight to it. If, well, yeah, if yeah. they respond negatively in that in that way, I think, yeah, I mean, it, at least it affected them. At least yeah. they weren't just like, yeah. Um, but as, you know, you mentioned that, I, I mean, I've read memoirs where you could tell the person who wrote it had an axe to grind, and I never liked that, you know, yeah. because... Uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but it, there was a memoir that this guy wrote where he had made, he became best friends with this guy who turned out to be a con man. You know, the guy said he was related to the Rockefellers and uh, the tone of the book was just so angry. And I, I immediately could see it's like the, the reason this guy wrote this book is just to like, you know, get back at the guy who tricked him. Yeah. You know, and I don't think people want to read those stories. I think, I, I mean, I don't. I mean, and I think you just want to kind of have that distance as a writer and then let readers make their own judgments, you know. Yeah. I, well, t- she didn't like your memoir. You don't like Confederacy of Dunces. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that's, a, that's part yeah, of the art, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, that wraps up. That's where we're at. We're at the hour mark. Um, as we develop this, like I said, we'd love to have our mind back. We have other um, setups that we're planning to do that uh, I will beg him to be a part of. Um, before we go, this, this is his last novel he had, um, The Lord's Acre. Uh, mine's all written and studied. Um, I'm going to get mine signed before this. Uh, if you want to go and follow us on Instagram, the icon- underscore Iconicast, um, I'm buying another copy and I will pick from the next people who follow the Iconicast over the next week. We'll get a free copy of his latest album, The Lord's Acre. Um, he's working on a horror novel now. Um, he's an instructor here at Southeastern. And uh, just want to say thank you, man, for... I know you're an open book, but every time you begin <laughs> to talk, I, I feel like uh, going to church a little bit, you know? So Thanks, I appreciate Tyler. it, man. Thank you. Thanks but, for uh, having me. It was an honor. Yeah, dude. Well, this is Southeastern Louisiana University English Department Colloquium. Kendall, co-producer, Caleb, technician. I am Tyler. We are thankful that you uh, spend a little time with us. And again, check out the Iconicast. Uh, next guest is February the 22nd, Nicole Samek. Um, she is a Francophone literary scholar and translator. Translated much of, I shouldn't say much, only one of Maurice Condé because Maurice Condé only lets her husband translate anything else. So Samek's position is, is very unique. But uh, we'll be there on the 22nd and uh, share this podcast. This will be archived for those who couldn't stream live. And we'll see you all next time. Enjoy your day.